Hey there, welcome to another edition of LiveWire. I'm Luke Burbank. This week on the show, we're going to talk to two brilliant people who do a bunch of stuff, including hosting podcasts, which is fine. We're not threatened. First up, John Green. He wrote the novel The Fault in Our Stars, which became the movie, which made us all ugly cry in the theater, but then feel the intense connection of our shared humanity. Or maybe that was just me. Anyway, he has a new book out. It's called The Anthropocene Reviewed. In it, he gives one to five star reviews of everything from Diet Dr. Pepper to the QWERTY keyboard. It's fascinating. Then we're going to talk to the rapper and writer Dessa about her latest project, releasing a song on the 15th of every month. And she'll even perform her latest song, which is a rap about, you guessed it, Terry Gross. I promise you do not want to miss it or this episode of Livewire, which gets started right after this. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of LiveWire is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, and then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Hey, Elena. Hey there, Luke. How's it going? It's going well. I noticed the thing you've been doing the last few weeks. I really like it where you're buttoning your shirt up to the top button. Yeah. It's very fashionable. <laughs> Do you think it counts as like business attire? Oh, absolutely. No, you look very professional. Do you think it counts as business attire even if it's a pajama top? Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, they make business pajamas now. That was Go. one of the few good things that came out of the pandemic. Hey, uh, are you ready to do this show in your business pajamas? Yes, hold on. Let me check, make sure my button is secure. Yes, I'm ready to go. Molly, are we recording this thing? Hey, Luke, we're rolling. Okay, take it away, Elena. From PRX, it's Livewire. Recorded from our actual houses, welcome to the Livewire house party. This week, writer John Green, with music from Dessa. I'm your announcer, Elena Passarello, and now, uh, the host of Livewire, Luke Burbank. Oh, thank you so much, Elena Passarello. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in, whether you're wearing your business pajamas or your casual pajamas, wherever (laughs) you might be. Thanks for checking in on Livewire this week. We have a great show in store for you. I am legitimately very excited for folks to hear these interviews that we're going to be playing. Same. Of course, we also asked the LiveWire listeners a question like we do each week. This week we asked, write a review of something you'd only give one star to, but other people seem to love. First, though, we got to start things off with the best news we heard all week. (laughs) 
This is our little reminder at the top of the show. There is good news happening in the world. Elena, what's the best news you saw this week? Okay, we got Georgia news alert. All right. Love it when something happens down in Georgia, Mm -hmm. my home state. Earlier this week, a FedEx driver in Sewanee, Georgia, named Mikhail, was flagged down on his route by a six-year-old named Cooper who had this beat-up skateboard in his hands, and he put it, uh, he gave it to the FedEx employee, gave it to Mikhail, and said, can you mail this for me? And uh, he was like, okay. And he looked at the skateboard and Cooper, the six-year-old, had written his name on one side of the skateboard. And then on the other side of the skateboard, he had written Tony Hawk. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm assuming like no postage, no address, no. just the name nope. Tony Hawk. Yes. And his mom was there kind of winking like, okay, can you quote unquote send it to Tony Hawk? But Mikhail said, the, the least thing I can do is put it out there in the universe. Okay. So he gets on TikTok And again, this was just like 96 hours ago. Within a very short period of time, his phone is blowing up and Tony Hawk has seen the TikTok looking for an address where Mikhail can send Cooper's skateboard. See, like me, Tony Hawk, notoriously cool middle-aged dude, is also on TikTok a lot. That's right. Well, actually, uh, he actually hadn't posted to TikTok apparently since 2018, according to the CNN report. But he did post a video, and I thought you might like to hear it. Okay. Hey, Cooper, what's up? It's Tony Hawk, and I just want to say thank you so much for the skateboard. It's on its way to my house already. And uh, as a thank you gift, I'm going to send you my skateboard, this one right here that I'm riding. All right? Thanks, buddy. Hope to meet you sometime. And the skateboard is not like just something that he pulled out of storage that's like brand new. It's like scuffed up. It's got Tony Hawk's magic all over it. Uh, he also recorded it in a really amazing looking skate park that's probably his backyard. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> it's probably like his backup skate park. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, what's really crazy about that is I was a kid who was obsessed with Tony Hawk. Even though he's only a few years older than me, he was so good at skateboarding as yeah. a young kid. Like he's, he's just been a hero. He's like Weird Al Yankovic. Like I oh. was into Weird Al when I was in sixth grade and my brothers were equally obsessed with him when they were in sixth grade mm-hmm. 20 years later. There are just some of these people that yeah. seem to defy the generational stuff. Going just south of Georgia down to Florida is where we find the mm. best news that I heard this week. Uh, for a long time, for like almost 30 years, the system uh, with the Ringling Brothers Circus was – Uh, The elephants that were too old to do the elephant tricks anymore, you know, like Mm, walk mm -hmm. on the ball and stuff like that, they would be retired to a retire, was called a retirement refuge somewhere in Florida. Well, the Ringling Brothers Circus has now folded. They got all these elephants they're trying to figure out what to do with. And this uh, couple who are philanthropists, this married couple, they bought this huge, like 2,500 acres of land in Florida. And they're calling it the White Oak Conservation Center. And they just released the first group of these elephants that are now retired from being in the circus. And so instead of being at this kind of crummy retirement home they were at, now they can just wander wherever they want. And the greatest thing is a few of them haven't even been seen in like three or four days since they were released because they're just able to enjoy themselves and go off in the woods. Apparently, some of their favorite activities include swimming in the deep end of the pond, Mm-hmm. giving themselves dust baths, and oh, yeah. eating a buffet of watermelon and banana. There is apparently, oh. it's like all-you-can-eat elephant buffet at this place. <laughs> One of the other things that's kind of crazy is the youngest elephant is eight years old, and the oldest is 75. Wow, yeah, they do. They have a long life expectancy, even in captivity. One elephant, they like let him out of the trailer thing, right? I mean, this is an elephant that's presumably been riding around on trains and 
you know, mm-hmm. being under a lot of stress. This elephant, they let it out of the trailer, this circus elephant, and it just walks over to under a tree and it just lays down and takes like an hour nap. First thing it does. <laughs> First thing it does. And the person who, who released <laughs> the elephant said there wasn't a dry eye at this place just to see these mm-hmm. these beautiful, majestic animals get to just live out their days in, in comfort and happiness. So Amazing. I'm going to put that down. Now I just need Tony Hawk to send one of them a skateboard and we'll have brought together... <laughs> All of the best news this week. That's the best news that we heard all week. All right, let's get our first guest over to the house party. He is a New York Times bestselling author of six books, including the smash hit, The Fault in Our Stars, which, of course, was also made into a film. Also, the critically acclaimed Turtles All the Way Down. His latest book, The Anthropocene Reviewed, uh, which is based on a podcast he hosts by the same name, reviews various aspects of existence on a five-star scale. Everything from the act of whispering gets rated in this book all the way over to something called the yips, which is something that happens to um, athletes. Let's welcome John Green to Livewire. It's great to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, I've been a fan of your various projects for a long time now. I'm really excited to to talk about this new book, but I would like to start at uh, maybe the part that's only interesting to me, which is I got the review copy of this book and I noticed that you had signed it. And I thought, well, you know, I'm a fairly well-known radio host. I probably, John was just trying to make a good impression. (laughs) And then I learned that, in fact, you autographed all 250,000 of the first printing of this book. Yeah. How do the mechanics of that even work? Well, um, you, you sign them one at a time. And okay. then uh, <laughs> if you spend 500 hours doing that, at the end, you've signed 250,000 copies. But So the way that it works is you sign an, in, an individual sheet, and then you pack up all 250,000 sheets. And I sent them to the printer in Virginia. And then they have a machine that shoots one signed page into each book as it's being bound. So it is true that I signed that book for you because you are a fancy radio host, but it mm-hmm. is also true that there are literally no unsigned copies of the Anthropocene Reviewed book. Yeah, you point out, I think, in in one of the ads for the book that if someone happens to get an unsigned copy of the Anthropocene Reviewed, that will actually be more of a collector's item at this point. Very rare. Very <laughs> rare indeed. All right. Now that we have that out of the way, can you, for folks that may be unfamiliar with the term, can you uh, kind of explain what Anthropocene actually means? Yeah, I probably should have chosen a title for this book that was either easy to spell or easy to pronounce or that, you know, had a a settled definition. But there's there's no looking back now. The Anthropocene is a it's a proposed term for our current geologic age in which humans have become not just like the dominant species on the planet, but but a geologically significant phenomenon with our, you know, tremendous interventions into the landscape, reshaping the planet's biodiversity and so on. And I took that as my starting point because I wanted to write a, a very personal book, but I also wanted to write a book about how weird it is to live in this historical moment when we are at once hugely powerful as a species, unprecedentedly powerful, but at the same time, like not nearly powerful enough. So together, we're doing all of this stuff that's having a huge impact on the entire planet and on every living being on the planet. 
But then like as an individual, I can't even like convince my children to eat breakfast. And this this tension between the power that we have and, and our absolute powerlessness, I mean, we've seen uh, our communities be brought to their knees by a single strand of RNA mm -hmm. is really interesting to me and I think reflective of this strange moment when we are both, you know, capable of tremendous change together, but sometimes like not capable of choosing exactly how we change things. Mm -hmm. Right. You, you, you give an example. We are capable of heating the earth up, yeah. but not capable of stopping heating right. the earth up. Exactly. Down. Yeah. I wish we were a little bit better at choosing how we reshape the climate instead of just being really good at reshaping the climate, which we are <laughs> incredibly good at. It's been a very long time since an organism did such a good job of shaping the climate. But yeah, we're not doing a good job of choosing how to shape it. Uh, you've written some really successful books of fiction, Turtles All the Way Down and The Fault in Our Stars. Uh, in this book, though, you say that talking about yourself in the context of fiction had become exhausting. What did you mean by that? Well, when I'm writing a novel, I'm not really writing about or even for myself. I'm I'm writing. I'm trying to imagine what it's like to be someone else, and and th th that's its own creative enterprise. But then often, when you get asked, like in interviews and stuff, to talk about the book, they always want you to do it in the context of yourself, which I totally understand. Like, I enjoy listening to interviews, and the parts of interviews that are good are not the parts where the author is like carefully delineating the difference between the novel and the author or whatever. <laughs> it's the part where like the author is bearing their soul. And so mm -hmm. I, I totally get it. But for me, it had started to feel almost like, you know, fiction is written in code. And I'm the only person who, who knows the code, knows the relationship between myself and the story. And it had started to feel like other people thought they knew that code. And I just found the whole process of trying to navigate that, like in both The Fault in Our Stars and Turtles All the Way Down, I was trying to navigate that. I was aware of the fact that people were going to read me into the story, and I was trying to think about how to deal with it. And then after Turtles All the Way Down came out, I had sort of a serious health scare. And when I was recovering from that, I realized that I just didn't want to write in code anymore. I wanted to try to write directly about myself and 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 really kind of for myself, not least because... I needed to write my way back into hope, mm. hope that the species is worthwhile, hope that my life can be worthwhile. And I wanted to remind myself of the, you know, the importance of connection between people, the importance, the, the incredible human capacity for wonder, for awe, for joy, all of that stuff I'd become pretty distant from. And so I wrote this book for, for me, which was a big departure. This is Livewire. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. We're talking to John Green about his new book, The Anthropocene Reviewed. We've got to take a quick break, but stay with us. Much more with John coming up in a moment. Hey, Elena. Hey, Luke. I didn't see you there. It's that time of year again. My seasonal allergies are back. Oh, congratulations. But also, it's our spring member drive, which is happening right now through May 17th. Oh, I like that much more than seasonal allergies. Yeah, if you are not yet a member of Livewire's League of Extraordinary Listeners, well, now is the time to do it. Why? Well, because this League of Extraordinary Listeners uh, is what keeps the lights on over at Livewire Inc., uh, which is definitely not the 
association that we are part of. I'm probably a 501c3. They don't let me near any of the paperwork mm-hmm. or bookkeeping, and it's really better that way. Yes. Point is, we we are only able to keep doing this show because of support from our members, and we would love it if you could join us in that right now. Plus, there are all kinds of sweet perks, including uh, special discounted tickets to live recordings, on-air shout-outs, exclusive content. Uh, and, Elena, uh, one more thing that, of course, we would not be a self-respecting public radio show if we didn't offer this. If we didn't offer the most iconic public radio swag of all time, a tote bag. True iconic status. Yeah, but it's not just any tote bag. This is like a really good tote bag. It's got a second zipper, an internal zipper. Yes, whatever you want to put in the tote bag, that's your business, okay? What we're mm-hmm. here to talk about is you keeping LiveWire going. So head on over to LiveWireRadio.org to see the various member levels it does not matter how much you are giving every month to LiveWire. It just matters that you do it because it goes a long way for us. So thank you. Vacations, weddings, birthdays, and reunions. Oh, my. There's so much going on. Get the most out of your spring plans by stocking up on pre-alcohol now. Zbiotics pre-alcohol probiotic drink is the world's first genetically engineered probiotic. It was invented by PhD scientists to tackle rough mornings after drinking. Here's how it works. When you drink, alcohol gets converted into a toxic byproduct in the gut. It's this byproduct, not dehydration, that's to blame for your rough next day. Zbiotics produces an enzyme to break this byproduct down. Just remember to make Zbiotics your first drink of the night, drink responsibly, and you'll feel your best tomorrow. Go to zbiotics.com/livewire to get 15% off your first order when you use livewire at checkout. Zbiotics is backed with 100% money back guarantee. So if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. Remember to head to zbiotics.com/livewire and use the code livewire at checkout for 15% off. Thank you to Zbiotics for sponsoring this episode and our good times. This is the Livewire House Party. We are talking to John Green. His new book is The Anthropocene Reviewed. He also has a great podcast of the same name. And the conceit of the podcast and also this book is is rating things on a, a kind of one to five star scale. What I think is interesting is you also write that those rating systems are pretty ineffective, you think. I mean, when you were writing book reviews, you said that the review itself was much more useful to the person who might read the book than just some kind of weird listing of stars. And yet you're using it as a conceit for all of this. Yeah. I mean, the thing about the five-star scale is that it's ridiculous, but it's also indispensable, which (laughs) is a lot like a lot of things in our current age. Like, yeah, I used to write 175-word book reviews for a living, and I didn't need to put a star review at the end of it because you could figure out whether the book was good from the review, hopefully. But the star system doesn't exist for humans. It exists for these data aggregation systems that are trying to use single data points to figure out the quality of a restaurant or a barbershop, or now like increasingly absurd things, like there are thousands of reviews of national parks. And one of the things that actually spurred this book in the first place was my brother and I were on tour in 2017, and we were driving through Badlands National Park, and we would read back and forth to each other the one-star Google reviews of Badlands <laughs> National Park. And they were just so absurd. Like one 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 one-star review read in its entirety, 
not enough mountain. <laughs> and like, I don't think you can hold a national park responsible for not having mountains. I don't think that's the national park's fault. If you wanted mountains, there are a number of national parks you could have visited. Right. And so I wanted to kind of capture the and point out the silliness and the absurdity of the five-star scale while also being like fairly earnest in my attempts to figure mm -hmm. out what I do think about something on the whole. That's what I was wondering is how seriously do you take the the rating that you're going to give something, let's say it's Diet Dr. Pepper? I mean, not that seriously. For instance, I can't tell you for sure what the rating of Diet Dr. Pepper in the book is. <laughs> <laughs> well, you are a fan. Oh, yeah. I do love it. That's an amazing story. <laughs> The Diet Dr. Pepper essay was actually the very first one I wrote, and I I kind of tried to write it as like an objective expert, you know, sort of a Malcolm Gladwell type, like looking down from on high at the world of Diet Dr. Pepper. <laughs> and it is a fascinating story. I mean, it's a, like most sodas, it was invented by a pharmacist, and it was sort of a drug, you know, like all those early uh, sodas were sort of, a, and kind of still are, like with all yeah. the sugar and caffeine. And so I was writing this story and, and then I showed it to my wife, Sarah, and she said, you know, this is nice and it's funny and everything, but like you have written 1500 words about Diet Dr. Pepper and not mentioned that you personally love Diet Dr. Pepper. And there is no like disinterested observer in this story or in any mm -hmm. story. Like everybody comes at something with a perspective. And Sarah helping me to understand that was really critical to the book that I eventually wrote. You know, you say something at the end of that piece about Diet Dr. Pepper that I don't have it right in front of me, but it was a it was talking about vices. Yeah. And 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 how well, first of all, you know, Diet Dr. Pepper is a vice for you maybe now that you don't smoke cigarettes or whatever. But the specific part that really struck me was talking about how we sort of um, the excitement around knowing that you're doing something that's bad for you is really yeah. part of the thrill of a vice. And as a person who is riddled with vice <laughs> myself, I'd never thought of it that way. Uh, that really changed my perspective. Yeah, I, I think I smoked cigarettes compulsively for a long time. And I would often think about why am I doing this? You know, like it's one thing to smoke five or 10 cigarettes a day, but when you're smoking 40 or 50 cigarettes a day, it's about something other than nicotine. And I think for me, it was about the, you know, for whatever reason, I've always felt this urge to self-destruct in, 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 in some way. You know, it, it goes back to adolescence for me. I've, I've always struggled against self-destructive urges. And the pleasure in smoking for me was in giving in to this, mm -hmm. you know, this, this compulsive need. Um, and I don't smoke anymore. I don't, I don't drink to excess. Um, but God, I love Diet Dr. Pepper. <laughs> <laughs> We're talking to John Green here on the Livewire House Party. Uh, his new book is The Anthropocene Reviewed. Uh, he's also got a podcast of the of the same name. The chapter of this book on the yips jumped out at me because I'm a baseball fan, and I've always been really fascinated with this phenomenon. For people that yeah. are unfamiliar, can you kind of describe what the yips are? Sure. I mean, I can describe it through the most famous example. On October 3rd, 2000, one of the best pitchers in baseball was a guy named Rick Ankeel, and he was pitching in a playoff game, and he threw a wild pitch, something he'd done two or three times that season. And then um, he threw another wild pitch, and then he threw another, and then he threw another, and he never regained his control again. He never 
became an elite pitcher again after that moment because he had developed the yips, which is a poorly understood, but we think it's mostly a physiological problem that is an actual sort of dystonia in the muscles. And so when he would throw, he would feel this little focal dystonia that would affect his control. And that's such a fascinating word in the context of baseball. We hear that all the time about pitchers, like this guy has amazing control. And you know, control is what we all want on some level, not just pitchers, but all of us. And to lose that all in one moment and to never be able to get it back is not just a threat to your livelihood. If you're a professional athlete, it's also a threat to your identity. I mean, Rick Ankeel had never been anything but an elite pitcher from the time he was eight or nine years old. He was, you know, he defined himself primarily as a baseball player. And to have that taken away all at once is such a difficult thing. But the beautiful astonishing part of Rick Ankiel's story, and this is also true for Anna Ivanovich, another athlete who experienced the yips who I write about in the book. The, the amazing thing about their stories is that even though they never recovered the ability to do the thing that the yips took away from them, they were able to completely rebuild themselves and rebuild their game so that they can again become elite athletes. Like the last time a major league pitcher won 10 games and hit 50 home runs was Babe Ruth until Rick Ankeel, who dropped all the way down to the bottom of the major leagues, worked his way back up as a hitter, and then had a second really successful career as a hitter and replaced Babe Ruth as the most recent person to win 10 games as a pitcher and hit 50 home runs. And for me, that story is so much about what I love about humans. Like we do not know when we are licked, we keep going, we persevere. And I just, I love that about us. Yeah. I also really like, John, that for what a obviously smart person you are and how much important information you have, you also love sports. <laughs> Which I feel I, like yeah, I those can't Venn diagrams myself. don't always overlap because sports are meaningless. What do you quote uh, Pope John Paul as saying about about uh, football? He says about uh, world football, to be clear, what we call soccer. He said, well, it, actually, I'm not sure that he said this, but it's one of those things that like he might have said, you know. Yeah. So full disclosure, he might not have said it. But it's a great line regardless of all the unimportant things. Football is the most important Right. And that is what I think about sports. Like, they don't matter, but the whole reason they matter is because they don't matter. You know, like, I I feel like life is, it's to some extent about what you love, but it's also about how you love it. Like, there are people who love sports in a way that doesn't connect with me at all. And then there are people who love fashion the way that I love sports, or, you know, th they, they love whatever they love the way that I love sports. And I feel deeply connected to those people because I, I just... I, I love someone who can have an unironic enthusiasm, who can feel unapologetic about wanting to in engage emotionally with the world. And like what I love about sports deep down is that sports allow me to feel things that as a 43-year-old, I sometimes like struggle to feel in other ways. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you write in the book and you've talked a lot uh, on various shows that you've done about your anxiety and ways that you will have intrusive thoughts later about interactions you've had with people, whether it's fans or whether it's people you're a fan of. I'm curious what it's like for you to do, you know, you're doing a publicity tour for this book. You're going to probably do a hundred of these interviews. Do these interviews generate a lot of possibility for you looking back and feeling not great about how it went? Yes. 
Uh, yes. This one's no going one's ever... well. I just want to say yeah, for the we, record. Yeah, we rated you. five stars. Take so, this yeah. one off the list. John Green, five stars, live you warehouse know, party. Nobody's ever asked me that question before, but it does in a big way. It's really hard for me. And after we finish this, I'll, I'll hyperanalyze. I mean, I think a lot of people do this, but I'll hyperanalyze my answers and I'll feel really unsettled about it. And I'll wish that I'd said something with a little more clarity or a little, you know, a little more carefully. The pleasure of these interviews from a listener's perspective is is the unguardedness, right? Mm -hmm. It is the openness. It is when the interviewer um, cracks you open a little bit and, and you become your real self and somebody can glimpse that. But that's also kind of what's terrifying about doing it because those are the moments when you're maybe not as careful as you should be or you're maybe not as precise in your language as you want to be or whatever. And so I'm sure I will. But that's to be clear, like that's not your fault. And it's not, it's not even, it's, it's nobody's fault except for the fact that I have OCD. So like, I don't need this to have intrusive thoughts. So like, <laughs> I, I was going to, I was going to have them today anyway. Um, I was going to, I was going to have OCD regardless of whether we were doing this interview. And that's part of what I tell myself when I get ready to do something like this is like, well, you had OCD yesterday and it wasn't fun and it's probably not going to be that fun today, but you're also going to have it tomorrow. So like, just do your best. That makes me wonder, is it a solace to write then? Because the line yes. is polished and that's exactly it. Both genres, the fiction and the nonfiction? It is a solace. And it also, you know, especially when I'm when I'm writing fiction, I it feels like almost like I can escape myself. Almost like I'm not stuck. I mean, one of the big problems with my particular um mental illness is that I really don't like being inside of my body. Like I mm -hmm. I, I have a lot of fears about contamination and it's it's horrifying to me that like half the cells inside of my body are not actually mine. They're bacteria colonizing me. <laughs> and so I like writing fiction partly because it feels like an escape. It feels like, oh, I'm not going to imagine what it's like to be me. I'm not going to have to try to think about what it's like to be me because I can imagine being this other person. But I also do like writing because of the precision of it. That said, like the moment something gets finished, like now this book is is it's it's out, it's well, it's real, it's physical. I can't change anything about it. I immediately start to worry um, about about it. So I don't know. I, I mean, in the end, like the way to to manage mental illness is to manage it, is to you know to or for me anyway, is is to treat it, to take it as seriously as I would any other chronic health problem. Um, and to understand that it's something that I'm going to live with, but I can still have a good life. But I do, I do love the writing parts of writing because um, I get, I get to think hard about what I want to say, and I get to think hard about what I actually think about something. And for me, writing and reading have always sort of been like the way that I have thoughts. Right. Like I don't know. I don't really have thoughts outside of them. Yeah. Uh, outside of language. Well, maybe this is a related question. How did you keep? these runs of thoughts in this book short because these essays are this perfect, like right before bed, you can read a couple, but the topics are huge, like bacteria or right. <laughs> deep time. <laughs> yeah. Know? Yeah. Piggly Wiggly. Honestly, in some ways, the Piggly Wiggly one was harder to pare down than writing about like 16 billion years of human history <laughs> because Piggly Wiggly was like a hugely important thing in American capitalism. But I did cut a lot. So like for me, one of the real joys of writing is like writing too much, having too much, and then trying to pare it down, trying to like see if I can do two things with one sentence, you know, if, if, if I can 
you know, do I have to make that connection explicit or can it just like live in the in-between spaces? And that's that's one thing I really like about writing. So paring it down and, and trying to get it to the sort of shortest length at which it could still be powerful was like, that's pretty fun for me. Well, you did an incredible job with it because as Elena was saying, I mean, you, you address some really weighty topics, but you do it with this real economy and clarity and humanness. I just never knew when I was going to be kind of emotionally <laughs> knocked over by a particular <laughs> chapter or a line. Like just this book really made an impression on me. And the podcast of the same name, The Anthropocene Reviewed is also great. Would recommend both of them. Uh, John Green, thanks for coming on the Livewire House Party. Oh, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Hey, special thanks this episode to Kathy Harwood of Milwaukee, Oregon, and Jeffrey Tilson of Paulsbo, Washington. Kathy and Jeffrey are part of the Livewire member community. They're generously supporting our show with a donation each month. We collect up all of those donations and we use it to buy microphones and laptops and pay people and do this radio show and podcast. We could not do it without fine folks like Kathy and Jeffrey. So thank you so much for keeping Livewire going. This is Livewire. As we like to do each week on the show, we ask the listeners a question in honor of uh, the conceit of John Green's book, The Anthropocene Reviewed. We ask the Livewire listeners to write a review of something you'd only give one star to, but other people seem to love. Elena, what is it that the Livewire listeners think is maybe a little overrated? Uh, I relate to this one from Julie, who gives gender reveal parties one star. (laughs) Julie says, the celebration is often followed by a state-commissioned investigation into a forest fire. (laughs) I mean, gender reveal parties may be the greatest threat to our public safety (laughs) at this point. I mean, the the lengths that folks are going to to celebrate this moment, and of course, it's a great moment when, when you have a kid and... We want everyone to have as much fun with it as possible, but my goodness, you don't need an explosion (laughs) on the likes of what Francis Scott Key saw when he was writing the Star Spangled Banner. (laughs) Calm down. It's so interesting to me because you couldn't even determine the sex of your baby, and it is a sex reveal party, not a gender reveal party because gender is a contract, right? But it's like 40 years old, right? Like we couldn't have it done, and now it's become this this rite of passage, this ritual that involves fireworks in like the span of like half of a lifetime, which is so interesting to me. I can't wait for it to kind of go the way of all flesh. Uh, Yeah. One star for me too. That's such a good point. I hadn't even thought of that, Elena, that, I mean, we call these things, I guess, loosely gender reveal parties, but many people don't fully know or identify with their gender for a good while after they're walking around on this planet. Yeah. It's a sex reveal party. It just has to do with what's the physical equipment we're dealing with. Yeah. The gender a- part of it, that'll that'll sort itself out at some point. That makes it even weirder when it's like an equipment reveal party. You know? <laughs> <laughs> All right. What's something else that our listeners think is possibly a little bit overrated? Here's a controversial one from Carter. Carter gives one star to paddleboarding which Carter calls the standing desk of water sports, only <laughs> you wear a Speedo. <laughs> have you ever done it? You must have done One it. One time. I was on a TV shoot, and I was interviewing a stand-up paddleboarder, and the producer of this TV story thought it would be good footage for me to get on the paddleboard. Now, here's the problem. 
I was dressed like in street clothes. <laughs> I also had like a thousand dollar microphone attached to my little jacket. Oh my gosh. And I was in the frigid northwest waters of the Pacific Ocean. And let me tell you, it was like it look I look like Scooby Doo in a cartoon <laughs> when he runs across a bunch of ball bearings. Yeah. Oh we don't, oh we don't, we don't, we don't. I immediately like fell over but caught myself on the board. Somehow got back up, did some crazy like machinations, and then grabbed onto the side of the sailboat we were filming from and climbed back on. That was the beginning, <laughs> middle, and end of my stand-up paddleboard experience. And you didn't get wet, though, and the microphone was safe. Somehow I did not fall into the ocean, but uh, it was terrifying. And yeah, for me, I'm giving it one star. What's something else that one of our listeners uh, thinks is maybe only a one-star event? All right, as a Seattleite, uh, a person who spent a lot of time in Seattle, I want I want your opinion on this because I, I have to say I disagree. Maggie gives one star to the band Heart. <gasps> oh, that's a hot take for yes. public radio. Controversh, wow. right? Well, the thing is, I think Heart has written some of my favorite and least favorite songs. Hmm. <laughs> so I guess, I mean, it definitely has to be more than a one star. Any band that can write Barracuda yeah. or Magic Man. Yeah. Or I mean, um, uh, how do I get you alone? I'd put that one more no, on the wrong, wrong. <laughs> that was music to roller skate by. There was a whole era <laughs> oh, for heart yeah. when I was growing up in Seattle, and I'd go to Linwood Roll Away. <laughs> yeah, when most of the songs playing were by heart, kind oh. of like <gasps> late eighties heart. Yes, the um, these trees go out yeah. when I close my eyes. All of them. Dog and butterfly. <laughs> It got in a real, it got a, it got a real ballady there for a while for mm. the Wilson sisters. Not just ballads, but, power ballads. Indeed, I'm, I, I have to, I've disagree though with Meg. I got to give Hart at least a three. I mean, at at a minimum, full five. What, Full five. five from Passarella. Absolutely. Nancy Wilson, one of the greatest voices of... Sure. Yeah, she's amazing. The, the best. All right. I am giving our next guest a five-star review before we even do this interview, because she is that talented, Elena. She's performed at Lollapalooza and Glastonbury. Uh, she's part of a hip-hop collective. She's written for the New York Times Magazine. She presented a TED Talk that's had like two million plus views. Mm. And when she's not doing all of that... She also hosts a podcast on science and human behavior called Deeply Human. Oh, and also she's been releasing a song on the 15th of every month. She's calling it the IDES Project. It's been going on for much of the pandemic. Dessa, welcome to Livewire. Thanks. The more that I read about you, I feel like the more there is to find out about your, your various talents and interests. Uh, you're a rapper, as I just mentioned. You also wrote a memoir. I think I left that out of the intro. And you host a podcast called Deeply Human. How did you get that gig? That gig, um, I have to admit, I didn't I didn't seek, although I was super excited when it kind of came knocking. So I've always had an interest in science and human behavior. I studied philosophy in college. And I had done like a couple of one-off um, live events, you know, trying to combine an interest in behavioral research with music or writing. So something that felt like science, but it didn't feel like eat your vegetables and something that <laughs> felt like a concert, but you came home smarter. And um, after having done a few of those events, I got a note from a colleague at APM who said, hey, I know that the BBC is working on a, a new podcast. We're partnering with them and they might be looking for an American host. Would you be interested? And I threw all of my hats into the ring. What kind of music did you grow up listening to? I liked then, and I still like now, a lot of like 
pop pop music you know like a high sugar content movable um lots of michael jackson in the house uh sade some tina turner um but my dad was also a classical musician and so i listened to to him playing on a yeah. like a nylon acoustic guitar and he was also a lutenist which is like an elizabethan precursor to the guitar so he oh. played the lute mm-hmm. so then when did you actually start getting into hip-hop when you start rapping I was really late for a rapper. You know, rappers are like violinists. They start when they're like as high as your leg. Um, <laughs> so for me, it was circuitous and that I, I had really wanted to be a writer and I wasn't sure how to break into that field. It's a very like gatekept prescriptive path into that literary world, you know, and I wasn't really sure how to get in. And then I was encouraged by my best friend, Jacqueline, to go to a poetry slam. She was like, yo, I think you could do this. And I was like, I think I might be able to do this. And so <laughs> I competed at the next one and and I won. But unbeknownst to me, like all the best poets were out of town. <laughs> it was loaded dice. Um, so for me, the entryway into hip hop was through that slam scene. And there, while competing as a poet, essentially, I met a, a bunch of members of the Minneapolis hip hop community and was invited to start performing my rhyming poems over music. This is the Live Wire House Party. We're talking with Dessa. She is putting out something called the Ides Project. It's a series of songs that you're putting out on the 15th of each month. Now, uh, I think this might have been the last song that you put out. This is fascinating to me. It has no verbs in it. I'm pushing my that, glasses all the way up my nose and into my brain. <laughs> but I like I couldn't quite wrap my mind around what that would sound like, but let's just play a little bit of it. This is talking business. Knock, knock, ten o'clock, housekeeping with breakfast. Our shot, coffee hot, airborne in the French press. Face down on the bedspread, color nearly half dead. So recognizable as a regular guest. Missing wallet, missing watch. Something in this tumbler probably stronger than the double scotch. Dizzy talk with busy cops. So did you just wake up one morning and like to challenge yourself and your kind of like grammar brain and musician brain think, could I do this? Could I do a whole song with no verbs in it? I mean, okay. So I I know how nerdy it sounds to be like, oh, here's a song with no verbs. But I also thought that even for, you know, people who are not particularly interested in grammar, um, Mm -hmm. I think there's an effect that that creates, you know, in the same way that like I'm not particularly well versed in um, in a lot of like the visual two dimensional visual arts. Mm-hmm. I said that like I am versed in three-dimensional visual arts. I don't know anything. Sculpture. Four-dimensional, sure, that's easy for me. I'm the Van Gogh of that. Um, but I know that if you know if someone painted in one end of the color spectrum, you know, or did a color study, we're working in primarily blues. Even if I don't know why, that's going to have an effect on me because the raw material is distinct. And so, I really liked the idea, and I'd had it for a while before executing it of trying to tell a story, but just like in snapshots, you know? So it's almost like you have, you know, hundreds of still images that when you view them in sequence, Mm. create the impression. And in this case, I decided to do it sort of like a a crime film noir vibe, you know? Mm -hmm. So by the end of the song, you realize who did it. Um, You tweeted out recently that comfortable clothes while recording, you can't stress this enough. A little bit of the magic missing from the last take might be in the sliver of the bandwidth your brain has devoted to the dig of the underwire for the mm. last six hours. I'm Preach. curious if you <laughs> if you have a go-to recording outfit that just like 
helps you focus completely on the task at hand. Yeah, I kind of do. I mean, I think initially, um, like when you see videos of people recording in studio, at least in the the genres in which I work. So it's mostly like pop or R&B or rap. You know, very often when you see people recording in studio, you know, they look really cool. They're in like essentially a lot of the, the clothes that they might perform in. And when I started recording myself, so like I engineer my own vocals, although I work with a lot of really talented, you know, mix engineers to get the thing right. But I record my own vocals in my closet. And first of all, uh, a lot of time the HVAC, meaning like the ventilation system mm-hmm. in, a, in a home environment, as you as you guys well know in audio, yes. can very often create like a that just runs through an entire take. You might not even notice it if it's just one, but as soon as you add one harmony on another harmony on another harmony, all of a sudden you've got, Uh. (laughs) you know, running in the background. So you have to turn a lot of that off, which means it gets hot, Mm -hmm. you know? So for me, it's like a great sports bra, barefoot and gym shorts, man. That is how the work gets done. (laughs) We got to take a quick break. We're talking to Dessa, Uh, And when we come back, we're going to hear a song from the IDES Project. Stay with us. This is Livewire from PRX. Livewire is thrilled to be partnering with Portland's own Portal Tea this season. Formerly known as Tea Chai Tay, Portal Tea is the premier tea company in the Pacific Northwest. They make one-of-a-kind handcrafted tea blends like cinnamon churro chai and blueberry cream earl grey. Use the code LIVEWIRE, all lowercase, for 20% off at portaltea.co. Welcome back to the LiveWire House Party. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarella. We are talking to Dessa, the musician and writer and rapper and person behind this IDES project where she's putting out a new song on the 15th of every month. Um, I'm wondering, you know, if in the early days or even if in, in these modern times, if you find yourself bumping up against any kind of pushback as a woman in hip hop? Yeah, um, I've definitely experienced some pushback. I've also experienced like people who didn't mean harm. Like, so for example, if I was like, uh, it was one of my first headlining gigs when I really started to be able to like draw around the country draw meaning you know attract attract a, a full room you know and i think it was california and i was kind of stoked i had my big hoop earrings on i had um black because when you sweat through it, it doesn't show and i was running to stage and this guy like flags me down and he's like yo can i get another beer <laughs> oh, <laughs> <You know? no. laughs> but in his defense like he's not trying to hurt me and i guess i'm wearing black you know i, I could be a mm-hmm. server so there's that kind of stuff but then there's also um like i think i was just ready for clear crisp crossed lines at which point i would unsheath my flaming sword and go all joan of arc and there have been so few occasions where it's that clean cut like Mm -hmm. the dudes who are total gentlemen backstage sometimes have really foul language on stage it's just complicated and then some of the dudes who seem really nice are total jerks off stage and then also in light of a lot of the new words that I think we've learned as we've talked about race in the U.S. Like, to what extent do I participate in misogyny? If I was raised by a misogynistic culture, how do I get it out of me, right? So there have been plenty of occasions to be insulted, you know, people touching my hair in a way that I cannot imagine them doing to male colleagues. And then on one occasion, having to bring a male colleague um, 
to the settlement room, which is where you get paid essentially in cash after the show sometimes to say like, yo, I filled this room and I have it in writing and you can't pay me half now. And when men were in the room, he paid me my full. You wrote a sort of Hamilton style song for the public radio show Marketplace about Janet Yellen, the Fed chief. Uh, It was called Who's Yellen Now? I'm curious (laughs) like what your, did you have to do a lot of research on monetary policy? Absolutely. I know I know about as much about monetary policy as I do about three-dimensional visual art. So it took a, <laughs> yeah, it, it took some research, but I like that stuff too, you know? So I spent some time on like Khan Academy and listened to Janet Yellen's old speeches to try to figure out, you know, what her what her approach was and what set her apart. And also just make sure I didn't, you know, inadvertently goof up any of my terms. Yeah. Well, this new song that you have coming out on the Ides Singles Project is called Terry Gross, which I think at this point makes you officially the sort of rap chronicler of all public radio, right? (laughs) I mean, you have a Janet Yellen-related song on Marketplace and a song now that's called Terry Gross, right? I mean, you're comfortable with that title? I suppose the next one has to be called, like, Tote Bag. (laughs) (laughs) Tote Bag. (laughs) So tell me a little about this song. First of all, the song is is catchy as hell, but it's also a, it's a really fascinating song. Uh, how how did this sort of develop? I think the process by which I've been working with my collaborators during the pandemic has meaningfully changed what we're ma- the product. It's changed what we're mm. making. So like, I guess it was the end of last year that it it felt like it was time to release some new music. But the the model that we've used for so long, which rests really heavily on touring, obviously was not executable uh, during the pandemic season. And so we decided instead to put out a song every month and then to try to brand it in a way that would remind people to check for it every month. I was like, let's call it mm-hmm. eyes because then it, they'll remember, mm-hmm. hopefully, you know, when yeah. we land on the 15th. Um but writing songs so quickly and not having the luxury of indulging the like neurotic hyper perfectionist in me has changed the kind of work that we're doing in ways that I'm surprised that I sort of like. So like, I think usually I just, I would just polish the stone, you know, out of existence sometimes, hmm. but there's been a lot more play, I think, because we're working fast. It's like, you can't, you can't do gravitas every month. <laughs> you know what I mean? In 30 days, yeah. I, just, I can't do that well, you know, that fast. And so it's forced us to do some like more playful stuff and some more pop stuff. And I really like that. Well, can we hear Terry Gross? Yeah, absolutely. Let me ask you first though, does she know about this song? Have you heard if this has gotten back to Ms. Gross herself? I know that Miss Gross has received it. Whoa. I know. <laughs> I don't know if she liked it, but I know I know I'd hit her inbox. Um, also, I'll just say really quickly, maybe before performing too, that uh, this beat was made by my longtime collaborator, Paper Tiger. And the song itself, like every other Ides song, was the product of kind of a, a a trio of artists. So it's me and composer Andy Thompson and hip-hop producer Laserbeak. All right. So these are those folks and Dessa putting the finishing touch on the song Terry Gross here on the Live Wire House Party. Ever since I was a little predator, mom's like, don't get ahead of me. 
I was on the hunt for something better than the regular And I knew there was candy at the register So not about to settle for the vegetables Full grown, still got a sweet tooth Still trying to climb all the walls I can see you Take your influences with you everywhere you go Mine were Carmen Sandiego, Lauren Hill, and Terry Gross I've been playing hard to keep kissing teleport Dark roots where the bleach won't reach Man, that's gotta be a metaphor But I'm still trying to storyboard it Call me back up for support And if you're looking for me on this Tinder About partners in crime Seems like Bonnie's work a little harder than Clyde And when it comes to the heist Doesn't feel like a partnership Cause my accomplice is completely inconsistent need a drink menu. I'll just take a white wine through a Twizzler. Great. Thanks, man. Two bars walk into a joke. First is a gold bar, other is soap. Yo, let me get the punchline, I'm worth most. Says it's a gold glass, too full to toast. But soap makes her voice go real low, leans close. Rarely one to go boast, but when the banks hit the button, the credit goes down to nothing, and the flood water coming, then let's see who floats. Watch for unintended consequences, those you can't see. Initials of your girlfriend could kill the freaking oak tree. Nothing in my pocket but the body heat. Travel light, mind your manners. That's my foreign policy. That Netflix chick, see the pieces on the ceiling. Strategy above me, all the moves as I'm competing. I arrive by lightning bolt, leave by Cannonball, the China's fine man, the bull's mechanic. Okay, before we continue this conversation, I just need to make sure you're not a robot. So, here, which one of these pictures has buses in it? Robots will never be able to figure out buses. A bass hit is the son of a pitch. A tanning bed is the son of the rich. Son, keep your knuckles up, front of the fists. Don't go broke looking for something to fix. A bass hit is the son of the pitch. A tanning bed is the son of the rich. Son, keep your knuckles up, front of the fists. Don't go broke looking for something to fix. No! That's Dessa here on the Livewire House Party. So good. A bass hit is the son of a pitch. A tanning bed is the son of the rich. Come on. Oh, man. Come that, on. That's good stuff. <laughs> the song is Terry Gross. It's from the Ides Singles Project, which come out on the 15th of every month. Dessa, thank you for coming on Livewire. Absolutely. Thank you guys so much for having me. Okay, before we get out of here, a little preview of next week's show. We are going to be talking to Michael Arsenault about his book, I Don't Want to Die Poor. Uh, which, along with being really incredibly funny, also brings up super important stuff about student loan debt. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a, the rare book that blends personal humor and student loan debt. <laughs> uh, then we're going to be talking to Slate advice columnist Daniel Mallory Ortberg about his book, Something That May Shock and Discredit You. Then Jonathan Russell from the band The Head and the Heart is going to perform a song for us. Uh, plus, we will be looking for your answer to our listener question. Elena, what is the question for the listeners for next week's show? Oh, this one this one hits me where I live. What's a piece of financial advice that you'd give to your younger self? <laughs> uh, I just I have to st- I have to figure out a way to not fall asleep every night thinking about all of the bad financial decisions that right. I've made <laughs> and or opportunities that I've missed. Well, yeah, those, I mean, those are, that's hard, especially when now, you know, like, oh, if I would have bought this house mm-hmm. for $5,000 in I know. 1999, I would be a trillionaire now because whatever. Exactly. <laughs> so we want to hear the uh, advice that you would give to your younger self uh, regarding the world of finance. Maybe it's to just take it easy and go with the flow too. It doesn't all have to be like regret. No, no, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. 
All right. If you want to send in your thoughts on that question, uh, you can submit your answers via Twitter or Facebook. We are over at Livewire Radio. That's going to do it for this episode of Livewire. A huge thanks to our guests, John Green and Dessa. Livewire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines. Laura Hodden is our executive producer. Heather D. Michelle is our executive director. Tim Harkins is our production director. Our producer and editor is Melanie Sevchenko. Our assistant editor is Trey Hester. And Jennifer Vo is our social media manager. Our music is composed by A. Walker Spring. And Molly Pettit is our technical director and mixer. Additional funding provided by the Oregon Cultural Trust and the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation. Livewire was created by Robin Tenenbaum and Kate Sokoloff. This week, we would like to thank members Kathy Harwood of Milwaukee, Oregon, and Jeffrey Tilson of Paulsbow, Washington. For more information about our show or how you can find our podcast, head on over to LiveWireRadio.org. I'm Luke Burbank for Elena Passarello and the whole Livewire crew. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Wouldn't it be amazing to have a piping hot episode of Livewire delivered right to your heart and ears each week? Well, guess what? That can happen when you subscribe to the Livewire podcast feed and you'll get the joy of surprising conversation every week. So go ahead and do it. It's super easy. You click on the button at the top of your podcast app and bam, you are Livewire subscribed. And if you're still, you know, feeling the love, if you're enjoying the show, hey, maybe you could hook us up and uh, leave us a quick review. That'll help more people find out about Livewire. And thank you.